everybody, welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we're the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right, we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are. And Seth, next weekend, we're going to be at PAX. We're going to be at PAX? We're going to be at PAX! Are you double checking your calendar? <laughs> That's right, I always double check my calendar to make sure I don't even know what weekend next weekend is. Oh yes, well next weekend is uh, the Penny Arcade Expo in Boston, Massachusetts, and Seth and I will be in attendance as people who paid for tickets. That's so right. So if you are at the Penny Arcade Expo in Boston, Massachusetts, and you see two people wearing identical clothing who have our face on them, like our logo, that's us. Come say hi. And if you say, hey, Classic Gaming Brothers, who knows? Maybe we'll give you something like a pin or a sticker. We don't have any pins. It would be like a button. That's what I mean, a button. Well, a button and a pin are entirely different things. Anyway, we are at PAX next weekend. If you do see us, be sure to come say hi. Uh, We will be excited to see you uh, if you are a fan of the podcast or someone who just really likes two brothers. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Seth. What have you been recently playing? Recently, I've been playing a game called The Captain. Now, The Captain was a game that came out December 3rd of last year, 2021, and it was developed by Sasaic Games. And this game is a retro-inspired adventure game, which is game code for pixel art and like a pseudo 16-bit. No, it's like 8-bit. It's 8-bit graphics where you play as a captain of a ship. It's a spaceship and it's a uh, sci-fi adventure and you travel through the galaxy in your journey to get back to earth before earth is destroyed and while you are traveling back through the galaxy you uh, meet friends along the way to help you get back in time Uh, i really enjoy the open world that the adventure game at this that the captain puts you in uh so you start off thrown far flung from earth and you have uh two years to get back to earth and in order to go somewhere like maybe if you want to travel to a close planet it's going to take like 10 days so there is some manner of urgency but not like intense urgency to do you know to get things done as you find and discover planets you'll get missions where you can land a la star trek on an away mission and you land down to the planet and you can explore the planet and solve puzzles and encounter dilemmas the game makes dilemmas where your choices have consequences and the game really, really, really falls onto that point that your choices have consequences. I was actually looking at the game because I was interested in playing something and I was looking to play something new and I saw this game and I was like, eh, I don't know if it's going to be a game. Like based on the images of the game, I was like, I've played a million of these types of games. I don't necessarily know if I want to play another pixel retro adventure game. And I read this guy's comment and this guy wrote like a book in Steam about how much they love the game. And it sold me and I bought it because the way the game was presented where it's really just a, your like away missions, you could just decide what to do and you could just, you do it. And your choices on the away missions will impact the game going forward. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do, it's not really a spoiler, but I'm going to talk about one of the missions. On one of the missions, you have to answer a distress call and you are informed by the ship that you must answer distress calls immediately based on the procedures and policies of the organization that you belong to. 
Space Fleet. And as a member of Space Fleet, you have to answer all these uh, distress calls immediately because that's the law. So you fly to uh, the distress signal and you land on the planet and you solve a puzzle trying to get into this room. And you get into this room after solving the puzzle and you find a guy who is cryogenically frozen. He escaped from his ship through an escape pod and was running out of rations, so he froze himself. And you check the computer and the last time when he froze himself, it was 980 years ago and he left a note that says don't bother unfreezing me if it's been more than 50 years like don't bother waking me up so you have a couple of options but the part in order to fix your ship that got damaged landing on this planet is in the frozen cryo chamber with him so you have to open the cryo chamber so you're presented with a dilemma you have to open this cryo chamber and you have to be greeted by this this guy who froze himself a thousand years ago the you have the option of opening it and telling him that it is in fact what year it is uh you can which leads him to be extremely depressed and he doesn't help you. You can open it, quickly reset timer and tell him that you just unfroze him and that and he just recently froze himself and then he'll go check the computer time and see that it's only been zero days because you reset the timer and then he will be happy and join you or you can give him your suicide pill that you carry around as all space fleet officers carry. Obviously. So you can give it to him and I think he would take it. I don't know. I didn't pick that option so i don't know what he would do or you could push the button start process on the computer while he was frozen i didn't know what start process was so what i did learn was that the guy took a converted meat locker a meat freezer and turned it into a cryopod uh, so when you click start process he gets chopped up and packaged as meat and so then when the, the pod opens you have a package of meat as well as the part that you're looking for it's just human meat and that's just one that's that's the first stop of who knows how many a lot i'm assuming since it's a it's a video game and there's going to be more than just one stop but um the it's they the game actually in one of the loading screen the game says that you don't have to go engage in any combat whatsoever to beat the game or you can it's been fun so that's the uh the captain by sasaic games nice so zach what have you been recently been playing well seth back in episode 120 i mentioned that i was playing Warcraft 3 Reign of Chaos which came out back in 2002. I've been playing it via discs that I picked up at Saver so I've been playing the original copies of the game not the reforged versions. Well recently I have started to play the Frozen Throne which is the expansion pack to Warcraft 3 Reign of Chaos. The Frozen Throne picks up right pretty much at the end of Reign of Chaos where um, the first mission primarily focuses on the Night Elves. It then goes into a human campaign and then ends with an undead campaign where you play as King Arthas, who was the uh, human king who fell to the Lich King and became a death knight. There's a lot of lore in Warcraft. That will be for another episode. Maybe if we return to the lore series that we have uh, previously done. Mm, Yeah, that's a good idea. But uh, the Frozen Throne, it's a pretty good game. I've been enjoying playing it. However, what I've really enjoyed, actually more than the three main campaigns, is a bonus campaign, the Founding of Duratar, that's included in the 
Frozen Throne, the founding of Durotar is a unique twist on Warcraft 3's gameplay. Instead of building bases and primarily controlling armies and such and maintaining resources as you would in a real-time strategy, the entire game of, of the founding of Durotar is centered on hero characters um, where you don't really have control over like grunts or, or peons or resource management. Instead, you play as Rexar, who is a half ogre, half orc, and you team up with various other heroes to go on various missions throughout Durotar, which is the new orcish kingdom that's being established. And it kind of acts as a, I think, prequel to the lore that gets established in World of Warcraft, um, where it kind of settles the whole differences between the orcs and the humans in terms of where they are um, social, social politically, where the humans are pretty much to themselves, the orcs are pretty much to themselves, they don't really engage in the same type of combat they did during the Second and First Wars, and it is a kind of neat game because it doesn't necessarily play in the style you'd expect from Warcraft, where you don't maintain resources like lumber and food, instead you're maintaining resources like gold because you have to go to shops to buy items, and you have to level up your character, so it has some RPG elements to it. Though there are some units that you can recruit from various barrackses or mercenary camps that allow you to kind of build a little squad. Primarily though, you can only really use your hero characters that you have assigned. And the hero characters have various summoning abilities, so they can summon assistance with for them to allow them to have a few other units in your party, but usually those summoned characters are very weak and often they'll uh, die before you do. So uh, I was... Uh, listening uh, pretty intently. And uh, did you say you're, you play as a character named Flapper? No, Rexar. I thought I heard Flapper somewhere. I don't think I said Flapper, but if I did, oops. Yeah, no, he's a half ogre, half orc. So he actually kind of looks just like a really buff human because <laughs> he's not green. He's like uh, more pale, similar to ogres, but uh, he's also like the size of an orc. So he just looks like a really ripped human. So he's the, the worst of both worlds, I guess? <laughs> Pretty much. Everyone hates him. Like or orcs aren't a big fan of him because they don't like ogres and ogres don't like him because they don't like orcs. Right. Though I do like uh, one part of the campaign, you go to an ogre like in camp and you go to the warlord and you're like i've come to join your guys clan because you're really just trying to like recruit ogres to fight against some humans that are invading duratar and the ogres are like no 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 that's not how it works first of all you're half ogre so we'll like half listen to you but most importantly you have to compete in our tournament so that you we gain your respect and you have to go and kill various like monsters around the map and go back to the the warlord and when you go back, you're like, okay, I killed all the monsters. Can you guys help me now? And he's like, no, 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 no. We don't want to. So then you just kill him <laughs> and you take over. But yeah, that's uh, that's uh, the Frozen Throne. And now I've been actually playing some of the fan-made campaigns. So... Frozen Throne and Warcraft 3 does have a pretty strong modding scene, um, specifically the original version, because Reforged disabled a lot of the features that allows you to mod the game. So uh, there are actually uh, full recreations of Warcraft 2 and Warcraft 1 in the Warcraft 3 engine. And the Warcraft 2 one is a bit more robust than the Warcraft 1, where the Warcraft 2 one actually adds uh, ships, oil rigs, and uh, various other things that you'd come to expect in Warcraft 2 
two that were removed in three. So it's a fun way to re-experience those campaigns because they are done fairly accurately. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the Frozen Throne. I recommend it if you're a Warcraft fan um, and you don't want to play Reforged. Nice. So the game that we're going to be talking about today is nothing to do with either of those games. It rarely is. Sometimes we'll have games that tie in. I We usually are pretty good with some segues. However, you didn't put down any memories for this game, a section for talking about memories. Do you have any memories for this game? I do. Oh! I do have memories about this game. Oh, so I guess we should say, if you haven't read the title of the episode, we're talking about E.T. the Extraterrestrial uh, for the Atari 2600. So, I have memories of E.T. They actually coexist with my memories of Pitfall, because I played Pitfall and E.T. at the same location. Now, I recall two different places that had Atari 2600s. There were some friends of the family that we would visit, and they had an Atari 2600 with the Tanks game on it. That was a lot of fun. Combat. Combat's a great game, especially the code that turns all the tanks invisible, and then you don't know what you're shooting at or who you're shooting at. That's always fun. So, I remember Combat. Now, they, those friends of the family, may have been the same people who had pitfall and et however i remember playing the atari 2600 in a bedroom i remember playing et and pitfall in someone's den you have clear memories of being in like a den that had a walkout basement out into a yard and they had the like atari 2600 set up and the room the den felt like they designed and furnished the den in the 70s and never updated it and this would have to be early 90s because i don't believe you have the ability to remember in the earlier than like what three years old i don't yeah i don't think memory retention begins until you're around four right i had to be extremely young we went to someone's uh like 1970s man cave den type deal and i played or watched someone play uh pitfall and et they were in my opinion both great games i probably wasn't able to form opinions beyond uh, that's technology i maybe not even that maybe that'd be like ooh, flashing lights uh was probably the level there but there those are my memories of vt excellent that it existed in my in in my history yeah uh, my memories of vt are very different because i was much older uh than you were when uh you first played et because i first played et back when i got my atari 2600 which i didn't get until i was in middle school already which was in the early 2000s <laughs> Well, those are memories, right? They're yeah, in the they past. They are memories. They are memories. They are in the past. And <laughs> I, I was I was young. But uh yeah. Um I mean E.T. at that time was very much a retro game. Did you own E.T.? So was the Atari. I do I still own E.T. I've actually owned multiple copies of E.T. in my life because it's cheap. Well, one, it's cheap, but also when you like video games and other people know you like video games, you'll often get video games from people uh, randomly. So I would sometimes just get like a box of Atari games, um, often in terrible condition. And I can guarantee in every box of Atari game I games I've ever gotten had a copy of E.T. in it. Nice. So at some point i i did have like four copies of et (laughs) there we go so we're professionals with et 
Uh, but yeah, so yeah, we were talking about E.T., the extraterrestrial. In episode 24, we did talk about Atari's history, specifically related to the founding of the company in the Atari 2600. We've also alluded to games like E.T. and the video game Crash of 1983 in previous episodes. However, to give everyone a nice fresh reminder, Atari was founded in 1972 by Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney. Both Dabney and Bushnell originally worked at Nutting Associates. Nutting Associates was a coin op manufacturer. While at Nutting, they created Computer Space, an arcade adaptation of Space War. Not, I don't think, an official adaptation of Space War. I think Nolan played Space War once and was like, I'm gonna make this game and sell it. <laughs> because that's what you did back then. Right, yeah, yeah. It was very hard to protect game properties, since most of them were tech demos at this time. Yeah, I mean, like, at that point, there was, what, like, five games? Yeah, people were like, look what you can do! And other companies are like we can do it too <laughs> now nutting released computer space under the label saizigi engineered saizigi which is hard to say is spelled s-y-z-y-g-y this was actually the partnership name that dabney and bushnell created for themselves while they worked at nutting and nutting labeled the game to essentially give them credit for it yeah so i feel like they developed this name because of the old like eight the old like value you know how you can remember your vowels a e i o u and sometimes y yeah yeah like they were like well sometimes y and then they decided to make a word with y's computer space for those who don't know sold poorly because you probably don't know about computer space and if you did know about computer space you're probably a gaming nerd so it it sold poorly and bushnell and dabney attributed this often to nutting's just poor marketing of computer space so they left nutting and they went off to go create their own company called atari Atari's first major game was Pong in 1972, and that was a commercial success. And a few years later, in 1977, they released the Atari Video Game Computer System, or Atari VCS, which would later be rebranded as the Atari 2600. Now, we've talked about the Atari before in our Atari episode and we talked about the sales of the Atari 2600 and all that in there. Though to recap, the 2600 was a massive success for Atari, selling over 30 million units in its entire life. While there were other game consoles on the market, such as the earlier released Fairchild Channel F, which we also talked about, or the more powerful ColecoVision, which there is also an episode on Classic Gaming Brothers 4, uh, the Atari 2600 was able to draw on consumers due to the abundance of quality games at the time and the simplicity of the unit. However, despite the successes that Atari was seeing, mistakes would soon be made. In June of 1982, a movie titled E.T. The Extraterrestrial was released in theaters. You might have heard of it. It's a box office success. It's just a little indie title. <laughs> in case you haven't heard about it, it follows a story of an alien whose name is E.T. And E.T. befriends a boy named Elliot. And I believe Elliot. No, does E.T. name himself? He goes E.T. phone home. But does Elliot actually originally name him? I haven't seen the movie in forever. I don't remember. Anyway, this small, creepy little alien uh, befriends uh, Elliot, and they ride off in the bicycle, and they go over the moon and all that jazz. They don't actually travel on the moon. It's a like a shot. He's actually jumping off like a ramp trying to escape the police. It's an iconic image. And the movie 
E.T. did so well that uh, Atari's parent company, Warner, quickly began negotiations to adapt the movie into a game, right? Because that's what you do with really great popular licenses is you make a bunch of merchandise. So there's going to be action figures for E.T. There's going to be movies for E.T. There's, well, movies for E.T. There's going to be action figures for E.T. There's going to be uh, video games for E.T. And if this was in the modern time, there would have been a Disney Plus series on E.T. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Steve Ross, who was the CEO of Warner Communications, met with Steven Spielberg and with Steven Spielberg Universal Pictures. And they quickly hashed out a deal that gave the company exclusive rights to make games based on the intellectual property. In later years, it was reported that Atari would have paid 20 to $25 million for for the rights, which equates to about 54 to $67 million in 2022 money. Now, for that time, this was an incredibly high price to pay for licensing, especially for a video game company. So it's all you get is the ability to use the intellectual property. So licensing is important because it brings name recognition to a product, right? It says, you say, this is a game and it's ET related. So people are like, I like the movie ET. Maybe I'll like the video game ET. That's what licensing is for. However, they could have just called it Alien and <laughs> had a story about an alien that was loosely based on E.T. and they probably could have gotten away with it. They probably couldn't have called Alien, though. No, Because there was true. a movie called Alien. <laughs> that's true. But they probably were... could have called it Alien and Boy. Ah, see, but I, I feel like, yeah, maybe Alien and Boy, but I feel like there is some level of genericism that you can't claim certain things as your own. Like, just because I made an Alien movie doesn't mean I can't make an alien video game if as long as the premise is not similar to the movie premise yeah back then i don't think people wanted to try to have that argument because that right. definitely would have gone to court <laughs> right well anyway they spent a boat ton of money to buy the licensing for et which is going to be a great idea yes and atari did have the money to spend at the time because they were a very successful company i mean as we've probably mentioned before atari was synonymous with video game Reportedly, sometime after the purchase, Ross was talking to Ray Kassar. Ray Kassar is the CEO of Atari and asked him what he thought about making the game E.T. Kassar reportedly said, I think it's a dumb idea and expressed concerns that they had never made an action game based on a movie, especially based on a movie like E.T., which is not an action movie. I mean, it has action sequences, but it is very much a children's fantasy film. Negotiations for the rights finalized on July 27th, 1982. Ray Kassar contacted game developer Howard Scott Warshaw and commissioned him to develop the game. Warshaw was not an unknown name at Atari. He actually had two major successes on the 2600, Yar's Revenge and Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was based on the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, and Yar's Revenge is a great game. Yes, yeah, they're both actually really good games. I think Raiders has aged more than Yar's has. Yar's is a very simple space shooter in yeah. many ways. Raiders is a bit more of like a puzzle game. You actually need to use both Atari controllers. There's like an inventory system. It's a really robust game for the 2600, but it was a very successful game when it came out. Uh, and both games not only had critical acclaim, uh, they were massive money makers for Atari. So of course Atari wanted someone like Warshaw, who was experienced with creating games, to create this game so it would become a hit. During his conversation with Kassar, Warshaw learned that the project had to be completed by September 1st of 1982, the year that they were currently in. 
and that was barely five weeks away. Right. That's a cr- that's crunch. Yes. So Warshaw had just about five weeks in one day to design, build, and finish this game. And the reason for this tight turnaround was Atari needed the time to get the game out the door for the Christmas holiday season. So they had to market the game. So obviously they had to have the game done by the 1st of September so they can immediately enter the marketing stage and get the commercials out the door and the ads in the newspapers and the magazines right. at the time. Get it to early reviewers. And manufactured. And the boxes had to be the, made. The boxes, the cartridges. The cartridges had to be made. This was just the design. This was just the creation of the, the game data. It wasn't yeah. the creation of the ROM. So the ROM would have to be made. It would have to be manufactured. And then they would have shipping and distribution times that they required to get to the retailers yeah. at yeah. the time. So in order to hit the Christmas deadline, you're probably still looking at two months just in manufacturing and distribution. And now some of you might be thinking, well, Zach, uh, Atari games are fairly simple and they, they couldn't have taken that long to make anyway. For some context, Yar's Revenge took Warshaw about seven months to complete and Raiders took about six months, meaning for both games, which came out very close to each other, he spent pretty much a year straight working on them. Right. Warshaw, however, was not daunted by the quick turnaround. Uh, he actually saw it as a major opportunity for him as he was going to get to not only build a game for this company that he liked working for, but also for a movie he happened to really like. So he accepted the job and he was given $200,000 or about $588,000 in 2022 money. And he was given an all expense paid vacation to Hawaii. That's a that's a pretty sweet deal. <laughs> yeah. Warshaw uh, took a private jet to Warner Brothers and met with Steven Spielberg to get an idea for what he expected from the game. He had already began development of the design and structure of the game itself, and he envisioned a world where players could float around and would try to build the phone that E.T. would use to phone home, which is uh, a thing that's in the movie. E.T. phone home. E.T. phone home? E.T. phone home. Warshaw broke the game down into four parts. World, objective, path to achieve the objective, and obstacles, like any computer programmer would do. For obstacles, he considered his limitations and ultimately decided to use the adults from the movies as antagonists, as well as pits where the player would fall down and find pieces of the phone. He also knew that these pits would ultimately expand the world around you. Warshaw presented the idea to Spielberg, who initially dismissed them. Spielberg wanted the game to be more like (laughs) Pac-Man. Warshaw didn't want to copy a game that already existed, so he decided to proceed with the game that he wanted to do. After this meeting, Warshaw got to work programming, and soon he had a working version of the game. And Atari, because they needed to get it out quickly, decided that they were just going to skip audience testing. Because they said, eh, Warshaw's got two really good titles under his belt. The game's probably going to do well. It's a known brand. We don't care. Just let's, we got to get it out. So let's just move it along. So they released it. E.T., the extraterrestrial, was released in December of 1982. For those who've never played E.T. or have seen it playing, Uh, The gameplay is pretty much as described by Seth for how Warshaw's original vision. Uh, You play as E.T. from a top-down perspective. Your goal is to collect three pieces of the interplanetary telephone so you can quote-unquote phone home. Uh, You can find these pieces scattered throughout the game, and they're usually found in various pits. There's no time limit to do this, but the player is limited by the amount of energy they have, uh, which is represented actually by a number at the bottom of the screen. It's like 9999, and as you walk around and perform other actions the number decreases when you walk 
it decreases by like increments of one or two but when you use other some of your abilities uh, such as being able to teleport which et can apparently do in this game it will eat up a huge chunk of your energy you can gain more energy back by collecting reese's pieces so for those who don't know reese's pieces play into the movie um and that was largely due to a advertising deal that hershey did with universal uh so you do collect reese's pieces and you also collect pieces of the telephone now if you collect nine reese's pieces you can actually summon elliot who will just give you a piece of the telephone because for some reason elliot doesn't want et i guess get home and will only let him get home if he trades him in candies i don't know elliot has other motives apparently alternatively though you can just find the pieces of the telephone scattered throughout the world and if you do that and you never summon elliot the candy will be added to your overall score after collecting the three pieces of telephone you phone home and a clock will appear at the top of the screen et will then have to make his way back to the landing zone that you landed at at the beginning of the game before the timer reaches zero along the way throughout the game you have to avoid a scientist who will capture you and bring you to a different part of the map and another enemy the fbi who will steal your candy and your telephone pieces as the fbi is known to do the fbi always after the candy and telephone pieces according to the manual of the game the game ends quote unquote when et runs out of energy or when you decide to quit playing which isn't that just life (laughs) what if you get to the landing zone i think the game will just repeat oh all right that's fair now atari had high hopes for the game and it was excited for it to become a hot-selling Christmas gift. And an article from a December 1982 New York Times, which was a big deal because this was the era before widespread internet usage, so people actually read the newspaper, uh, speculated that video games based on movies would be an increasingly profitable source of revenue. Retailers had high hopes as well and would order more supplies than they would anticipate being sold, largely due to the hype surrounding the game. So they had forecast and they said throw these forecasts out the windows let's buy some more it was great atari was happy the retailer was happy however early cancellations did occur mostly due to a sudden surge in competition that atari was now facing so some third-party developers started creating games for the atari 2600 like activision before the 82 there weren't a lot of third-party developers activision broke off from atari and started producing games and there was a very minor lawsuit where uh, atari tried to sue activision said you can't make games for the atari and activision won so suddenly everyone's making games for the atari atari did not anticipate they would have competition for the christmas 1982 market because before there weren't any other really developers making atari games so suddenly in 82 it's like everyone's making atari games and they're all coming out at christmas including activision's new game pitfall and and so retailers wanting to have a breath of products can Canceled some ET part purchases that may have been in excess of what they were expecting to sell and instead bought Pitfall. Now, but however, the pump was primed, the market was ready for ET retailers had enough copies on hand maybe even more and the game did have commercial success initially in 1982 it was billboard magazine's number four in their top 15 video game sale listings upon release 1.5 million units were sold this number soon increased to 2.6 by the end of 1982 yeah which if you're releasing in december (laughs) is pretty close to the end of the month you're 
already looking at almost doubling your sales figure and our atari is stoked everyone's happy atari's happy the retailers are happy they're looking to get more buys but wait, this is something new. The players begin to play the game and they hate it. And in 1983, at least 669,000 units were returned to retailers. There were also around 3.5 million cartridges that were unsold. Because remember, the retailers, they took their forecasts and they threw them on the floor and they just bought a bunch of numbers <laughs> and they didn't sell them. So now they're unsold. And at that time, retailers were reporting that it was mostly grandmothers buying the games because the children who actually were playing them actually preferred Pitfall. Now, unsold merchandise plus an expensive film license plus the large number of returns actually meant that this commercial success turned into a commercial failure. The game was overall negatively received, with gameplay and visuals being two major complaints. Most reviewers at the time said the game couldn't compare to games like Frogger or Donkey Kong, both, both which were available on the VCS. Some reviewers were less critical, with an editor of the Miami Herald, which is, as we all know, gold standard in publication, <laughs> said that it was worth dedicating some time to once you mastered the gameplay. So if you have some time, maybe this will be a good game. Arcade Express Magazine gave the game a 6 out of 10 in December of 1982. So yeah, it sold like a nice bright star and then fizzled out like a firework. And E.T. was brutal for Atari in terms of the ripple effect it had. The video game car the video game market would crash that year in 1983, and E.T. has been cited since as one of the primary reasons. Though it's certainly not the only reason. We've talked about this before. There was an overabundance of poor quality games and also an oversaturated market of game consoles. Uh, so you had like 15 different game consoles you could potentially buy. Consumers were kind of annoyed and confused. However, E.T. certainly didn't help. And E.T. also kind of drove the point home that maybe video games can be really bad. Unsold copies of E.T. were actually buried in a landfill in New Mexico. And for a period of time, this was considered a rumor. People had mentioned it, but there was nothing really on paper that really confirmed that all these E.T. cartridges were in this landfill. However, in 2014, as part of the Atari Game Over documentary, a crew excavated the site and recovered not only E.T. cartridges, but also unsold copies consoles and other games so uh atari just dumped a whole bunch of unsold product from the 1980s specifically 82 and 83 into a hole in the ground and buried it in concrete just like the pits that you can fall into in et uh the documentary itself atari game over was released in november of 2014 and was directed by zach penn it primarily focuses on the video game crash itself and its relation to et uh, it's a great documentary highly recommend watching it so uh check it out yeah for for sure is um, probably a much better encapsulation of what actually happened versus us. And I believe they actually interview uh, Warshaw on in the documentary. And he's the real winner at the yeah. end of the day. He got paid what would be equivalent to a half a million dollars today and got a week of vacation to put together something. Yeah. And you know what? 
there's that picture, you know, the picture of like design, right? So you can have something good, you can have something quick, and you can have something cheap. Can't have all three. I, I do want to also say that um, since the game crash, since like the past many years, since the 80s, E.T. has kind of earned some respect by game historians, people who are interested in game history, video gamers in general, largely due to the fact that Warshaw did put a lot of effort into the game for a five-week time span that he had to work on it. And also, he did have this kind of massive scope for the game and I, I i want you to think about the time period that et came out where as people who were critiquing the game mentioned other games frogger donkey kong those are very simple games frogger mm-hmm. you don't even press a button you move forward that's it so these are uh, most of the games et was competing with were games that were very easy one button less than a button control games and this was a game that had antagonists who would chase you it had these like this whole puzzle system of finding these pieces it had a whole currency system of trading Reese's pieces for telephone parts which wasn't even mandatory to play the game it had a time limit it had this energy thing you had to maintain there was all these different moving parts in ET that I think if Warshaw had more time to work on the game more time to kind of refine the idea it could have meant ET could have been a really powerful game for the Atari I don't know if it would have been the massive success that they anticipated, but I could see it rivaling Raiders of the Lost Ark, which also is a fairly complicated game. You actually need the manual to play Raiders of the Lost Ark because there's so many different combinations with the controller that you have to use to play. Warshaw was a visionary when it came to game design for the Atari. He wanted to push the system to its limits, and he didn't want to make a game like Pac-Man, which was a zero-button game that potentially could have sold better than E.T. would have sold if it was E.T. Pac-Man. But to this day, Warshaw will say that Spielberg's idea for E.T. version of Pac-Man would probably have been the better choice in the long run. Right. So, like, there's that always that question, right? Did E.T. sell the way it did because it was E.T. or because it was a different type of game? And I would say that if Warshaw went and made a Steven Spielberg E.T. Pac-Man game that was simple but was not what what E.T. was. I feel like there would have been probably the same level of sales velocity, and there may not have been that many returns. However, I don't think we'd be talking about it today. I think it would have been just another game. Yeah, I think it would have been that other game on the Atari shelf that you like that's not combat, and it's not... That game that's not combat or pitfall, what game is that? That's what it would have been. But with that being said, I think E.T. gets a lot of hate, especially from critics, people... Well, like internet reviewers and stuff like it's that game that you ends up on the list worst games of all time yeah i mean superman 64 is definitely et is a masterpiece compared to superman 64 they had time to make superman 64 and they did not use that time (laughs) i give massive props to warshaw though i will say if you want to play a game by howard scott warshaw play yar's revenge (laughs) like for god's sake that's the better game It's also one of the few games that has an Easter egg in it, which was very rare for games back then. But a trick that Atari programmers used to do was hide their initials or their name in the game because they were not allowed to credit themselves. That was actually against company policy at Atari. You couldn't have your name attached to the game. Yeah, because it was an Atari game. So he hid his uh, initials in the game. Um, So that's an Easter egg you can find. That's actually the reason why Activision even became a company was because they just wanted to put their names on the game. Yeah, but Atari ran like old school pinball games. Yeah. It wasn't your game. It was an Atari game. It's just like how Bally's makes pinball machines. It's not Greg and Design's pinball game. (laughs) 
But anyway, that's E.T. Yeah, that's E.T. It's a, a fun game. And like, like we said, uh, check out the Atari Game Over documentary if you're interested in more history uh, presented in a, a higher budget format. Yeah. For sure. So we're going to get on to our uh, Byway Pass segment, where we're always excited to tell you about games that we're excited to buy, wait, and pass. Zach, I'm going to go first. This is actually a game that we have mentioned before in the past in our Byway Pass, or at least I think we should, but it is closer to being out, so I wanted to talk about it again. So uh, this game is going to have some of that retro futurism that's going to be real popular soon, where it's like playing a person in NASA, but in a NASA like future so like 70s in the future what is it it's starfield by bethesda we're going to take a quick break as i take a look at starfield and we're back so starfield as uh we we have actually mentioned this game. Uh, it was actually one of I think the first byweight passes that we did in this new format, where I think this was a game I chose for Seth. Starfield is due out November eleventh, twenty twenty two, and is being developed and published by Bethesda, being directed by Todd Howard. It is a a new IP action role playing game in their line of action role playing games. Bethesda is also known for Fallout three and Fallout four, and they also have produce the Elder Scrolls games um, and they do a signature kind of job when it comes to action role-playing games. I don't want to say they do an amazing job with action role-playing games because I will say it now, there are better action role-playing games than what Bethesda has created. However, you can really not go wrong with playing a Bethesda action role-playing game. I've always had fun playing the games. Doesn't necessarily That doesn't necessarily mean they're amazing games. When it comes to Starfield, I'm actually really excited for it because I it's, it's a brand new IP. It's not not something like uh, Skyrim, which was around for many years, uh, always by Bethesda, but was just around for a long time, or Fallout, which was something that Bethesda kind of inherited. Um, Starfield is this new thing, and it's set in this alternate universe in the future, uh, kind of retrofuturism space setting. And yeah, it looks cool. Um, I'm interested in trying it out. However, um, I'm going to put it down as a wait, not necessarily because I'm not anticipating buying it. What it boils down to is I probably will buy this game. However, I do not think I'm going to buy it on release. Seth and I were joking during the uh, kind of looking up segment of this part about how Bethesda games are often very buggy. And that is true. They are often very buggy. So I do probably want to give this game uh, maybe a couple months after it releases before I do actually buy it because I want to be able to enjoy it without having my enjoyment ruined by potential bugs. This looks to be a pretty big game. So I'm imagining there's going to be bugs in it. I mean, there are still bugs in Skyrim. So uh, I will give it a couple months before it comes out. So that's why it's more of a wait for me. But I will probably end up buying this game nah day one for me so seth are you ready for your game i am seth your game is already out it's actually been out since september 16th of 2008 however it is coming out again but this time for the switch this game is game developed by lucas arts and published by lucas arts originally It's set in the universe that we know of as Star Wars. Wait, what? Uh, you play as a, a person who has force powers, and they might be unleashed. Oh. This game, Seth, is Star Wars, The Force Unleashed. All right, we're going to take a short break while I think about this. And we're back. <laughs> 
So I I own Star Wars The Force Unleashed on the PC. I own Star Wars The Force Unleashed 2. It is one of the few Star Wars games that I haven't really gotten into. That's um, fair. So I am going to pass on the Switch release. It is exciting that it's coming to Switch. I thought you were going to say... First, I thought you were going to say the new Monkey Island. It's for another that's episode. Also, that's also... <laughs> No, that is for another episode. And then I also thought you were going to say KOTOR, which I already uh, bought on Switch because I got it from Limited Run. So I'll buy those games. But uh, Force Unleashed, which is the game that you did present to me, I'm going to pass because... uh, Fair enough. Ultimately, I own it already on the PC. uh, So I guess I already did buy. But I also... It is one of the games that I really had difficulty getting in. Now, now here's the little brain weasel that's coming into my head. It was a horrendous PC port. It's like notably bad. Like it's infamously bad. It's considered one of the like worst PC ports ever. Uh, So maybe, maybe I will think about buying it for the Switch. However, I'm still going to put it as a pass because honestly, it came out in 2008. They did a crappy job at porting it and that's it. The game was released 14 years ago, and that would have been the time to recapture my attention. Releasing it to the Switch now just seems like a cash grab to me. But Anyway, that will do it for this episode. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you are interested in reaching out to the Classic Gaming Brothers to let us know everything we got wrong about E.T., you can email us. Let us know. ClassicGamingBrothers at gmail.com. Or just let us know how much you liked this episode. Maybe it was your first time learning about E.T. because you missed everyone else already covering this topic or maybe you learned oh, something new the game i thought you were stating like <laughs> this is the first time you've ever heard of et the movie might be anyway if you want to reach out to classic game brothers you can do so via our email classic gaming brothers at gmail.com or you can contact us through our website classic we are available on facebook instagram twitch and twitter facebook instagram and twitch are classic gaming brothers twitter is cg brothers pod be sure to like comment subscribe do all those things to let us know you like this podcast by visiting the various podcasting applications that we're on and rating us be sure to check us out on itunes spotify etc thank you again for listening everyone and remember we will be at pax next weekend so there'll still be an episode coming out next weekend but we're just going to be at pax a fun fact but uh come find us if you're there Uh, or don't i don't care anyway that's all i have to add do you have anything else seth don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been seth and i've been zach and we've been the classic gaming brothers that